Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan, and I'm the transitional pastor here at Simi Covenant. Glad to be with you this morning. On my way over um, on the highway, I had an interesting experience. Um, somebody cut me off pretty abruptly, and it was one of those deals where somebody like goes from one lane and just very quickly changes three lanes all at once. You know, you've seen those kind of things. I was a little bit offended. You know, I was like, this driver cut me off. Like, what's that about? You know, I don't, in my head, I don't know why I assumed it was a guy. It didn't have to be, but I assumed it was a guy. It very well could have been a, a lady. But the driver was just rude. And my first question, the thing that jumped into my head right away was, what's this guy's problem? Right? I fought the temptation to be angry and to even think ill toward that person, like, man, I hope he gets a ticket, you know? Look, maybe some of you are more sanctified than me, but I'm just being honest and I'm being real. When people cut me off like that, I don't like it, and I get mad. I get angry. I get judgmental. I start thinking of things like, man, what's wrong with this person and all this and that? You know, we as human beings, at least in my experience, especially in the United States lately, we tend to be combative people. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, we like to react to people, get angry at the things that people say or do, especially if it just rubs us a little bit the wrong way. Twitter certainly hasn't helped. We're quick to judge. We're quick to make assumptions about why somebody does this or what's going on with this person's life. We're quick to accuse, maybe not verbally, Maybe we don't do anything about it, oh, but we feel it in our hearts when we see things or we experience things that make us angry or uncomfortable. But what if I found out like this morning that this driver, and I didn't really get a good look at the person or, or what was even in the car, what if I found out that this person was rushing to the hospital because a loved one was ill and had an emergency? You still don't want them to be driving dangerously, but that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? What if there was somebody in the back seat, a pregnant woman, who was going into early labor and they were rushing to get to the hospital? Look, I don't know that driver's story, do I? I don't know. Now, maybe this person was really just being a jerk, but I don't know. But I'm quick to assume it's true, isn't it, that when we begin to learn people's stories, we're more likely to extend grace. But why is that? When I, in my own experience and when I observe society, I think our gut instinct is to respond towards others out of judgment, out of um, a sense of self-righteousness, I guess. There's something about the way we are. Maybe it's our selfishness. Maybe it's our own sense of pride. But I think some of this stems to the fact that it is hard for us to live a life that is marked by grace and gratitude. It's hard. Our society does not give, do us much favors in terms of training us to live that way. This morning and for all of this month, we're going to be exploring this theme, a theme called thanks and giving. 
it's not just about Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is later on this month, but it's about growing in our lives and in our hearts a heart condition and a lifestyle of thankfulness and generosity, both in spirit and in deed. So this morning, we're going to look at a somewhat uh, familiar parable for some of you. Some of you may not have heard this before, Um, but it's commonly called the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's found in Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We will also have the words on the screen so you can follow along there. Um, It may be familiar for many of you, but it's also worth revisiting because I think that in this story, we have illustrated by way of a cautionary tale the importance of a lifestyle of grace. A lifestyle of grace that is based upon or built upon the foundation of grace. Let's read together, beginning in verse 21. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sinned against me? Up to seven times? That seemed like a pretty good amount, a pretty typical answer. And Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. The the original language is a little bit unclear there. The actual number is not the point. The point here is, no, a lot more than seven times. A whole lot. You keep on forgiving. Then he begins to tell this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He began the settlement, like he's got his books out, like he's got QuickBooks out trying to balance the, you know, the balance sheet. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, or talents as it says in some translations, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. In other words, if he, based on the services that he provided, was able to sell his services to another person or to another kingdom, then they would be able to pay at least some of it back. He'd get a little bit of it back. He wouldn't get the whole sum, but he'd get some of it back. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master, the king, took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when the service went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a a denaro or a denarius. He grabbed him and began to choke him, and he said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. The words are eerily similar, aren't they? He fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. I don't know how anybody pays off a debt from prison. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called that servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had the mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he would pay back what he had owed. And then Jesus adds this, 
eerie warning at the end of the story. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Once again, this is a cautionary tale illustrating the importance of taking the foundation of grace that we rely upon as Christians and allowing it to influence our lives, to be played out into a lifestyle of grace. This begins with what is the foundation of grace. The basis, the very foundation of the Christian faith is the love and the grace of God. The premise of our faith historically is that humanity has fallen short, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul writes. We all make mistakes, and we fall fallen short, and not just by a little bit, by a wide margin. We have all sinned. I'm using that word on purpose. We sin. Sin is a scary word, and nobody likes to hear it. And the reason why is because people like to use that word to bash other people on the head. Like, you sinner. Well, you're a sinner too, so, you know, lay off. It's used as a way to vilify or to shun people. But if you look at the way that Jesus uses this word and, and to people who are caught in sin, for example, the adulterous woman who was caught in sin and was going to be stoned because the offense based on the crime and the law in those days was that she could be stoned for what she had done. Jesus protects her, protects the woman who was caught in sin. But just because he protects her doesn't mean that he says everything is just fine. He does say to her, go and sin no more. Sin is a serious thing. Sin is a mark that we all carry. It is in our selfishness. The ways that we prioritize ourselves, our own comfort over others. Sin is found in the way that we as a society are so wrapped up in material wealth and material goods while others, our fellow human beings, are suffering. Sin is found in the ways that we judge other people, that we live into the lusts of our mind and heart, the ways that we stray away from the ethical standards that are given to us by the Scriptures, the ways that we fail to love God, or the ways that we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's not that we have just barely missed the mark. It's that we have missed the mark by a large margin, according to God's moral standard. There's a phrase called, uh, that, that goes, uh, hitting, you, you know, you can't hit the broad side of a barn, Right? I love that imagery, and, I, and I, you know, I'm, I don't shoot or anything, so I often like to think of it as like throwing a baseball, and if I was standing there in front of a barn, like not that far away, I would try to throw the ball to hit the barn, but somehow I missed completely. It's, it's a, a ridiculous image, and, and the, it, also an image that comes to mind is when people shoot air balls um, in basketball games. I've got to find a way to pretty it up here. Pretty. That's what they did last night. Oh, look at this. That was, what I, was I, that? I don't know, but we got to see that one again. Rudy Gobert, that wasn't even. That might close. be the worst. That might be the worst jump shot I have ever seen. I'm going to watch it again just because I like it. Okay. 
I've got to find a way to pretty it up here. Look at that shot. Did last night. Oh, Look at this. God. That was, I, what I, was that? I don't know, but we got to see that one again. Rudy Gobert, that wasn't even. That close. might be the worst. That might be the worst jump shot I have ever seen. He missed it by a mile. It wasn't even close. He's a professional basketball player. But that's what it's like. It wasn't like you shot the basketball and it hit the rim and then bounced to the side. It wasn't like an in and out heartbreaker. It's we airballed it by a large margin, right? The servant in the story that Jesus tells has an enormous debt, one that is just out of control. Think about this. It says, he says that he has a certain number of bags of money. Now, when you do the math based on what we know about the finances of those days, it comes out to about 150,000 years worth of daily pay. This guy's debt, I don't know how you ring up a debt like that. I don't know what he was doing with his life, but he had a debt that would have taken him, based on his wage as a day laborer or a servant, would have taken him 150,000 years to repay. He could not possibly repay it. His children could not possibly repay it. His grandchildren or great-grandchildren, however many generations you want to go, they were never going to repay this debt. It was immense. It was absurd. And then the servant, in his desperation, comes to his comes to him and says, I will pay you back. The master knew that this was not possible. There was no way in the world. You get the sense that if somebody was coming to this situation and there was that amount of debt, that king, that master, knew it could not be repaid. That master was waiting for something to happen there because that debt was never going to be paid for, at least not by that servant. You know, when, if you were careless, let's say, and you know, I don't know, we were driving around or you were walking through the parking lot and you accidentally scratched my car because like your keys were hanging off the side and you scratched my car, you could reasonably say, you know what, let me take care of that. I'll, you know, take it to the body shop or whatever and get that repainted. I'll, I'll pay you for that. That would totally make sense. No problem at all. But let's say that you were really careless, like really careless, and you crashed into my car, you know, going really fast. I don't know why you're going so fast in the parking lot, but let's say that you did. And you crashed into my car. But not only that, I was standing on the other side of the car. And so that car careens into me, and I'm, you know, I break something in my back, and I'm paralyzed for life. And then you come to me and, says, and say, I'm going to make it up to you. Just give me some time. That's absurd. That could never happen. And the master knew it. Still, grace. Grace was given. This is the foundation of our faith. Basically, the master says to him, okay, you do not need to repay this. It is not only, okay, I'm not going to sell you off and your family to go serve someone else. It's not that. It's not like, oh, I will withhold the punishment. He says, okay. He goes, uh, he goes to a step that the servant never even asked for. I will cancel the debt. 
This is beyond reason, beyond logic. And this kind of grace costs the forgiver of the debt something. Because if you have any experience in accounting and you have a realization that you're going to have this massive hole there and it's just going to sit there and never be repaid, that is a cost to you. That is a cost to the master, to the forgiver. There is an extreme amount of grace given here. And even if we cannot fathom extending the same kind of grace that God does, after all, we are human, grace is still the expected lived response. If we are recipients of grace, if we have this foundation of grace, grace should be extended. The foundation of grace should lead to a lifestyle of grace. In this parable, the juxtaposition is really significant. The amount of money that the second servant owed was far less, 100 denarii, which is about 100 days' work. It's not a, a piddly sum. It's still a significant sum. It's 100 days' work worth. But in comparison, it's absurdly small. Does that make sense? So it's not as if the wrongs done to us are insignificant or the things that we must learn to forgive or show grace in are insignificant. It's just that in comparison, it is. What Jesus is doing in this story is clear. The exact numbers, whether it's 100 denarii or you know, a million talents or however much money, that's not the main thing. The main thing is the comparison. One who was forgiven should show grace. But not only in the story does he not show grace, he reacts violently, out of anger. Does this servant even understand the magnitude of grace that he has received? Or does he even care? Does he just feel like he got away with one? To put it in the language of sin and forgiveness, does this man actually repent? Or does he just say, hey, please cancel my debt, and then I'm going to just go on living? Does he take the free ticket and run? In God's economy, the truth is that if we have received grace, we are to give grace. Jesus talks about this in other parts. If the the Father has forgiven you, so you should forgive others. Why is it then that if this is part of the basis of the Christian faith, that Christians, and often rightly so, are characterized as judgmental, unforgiving people. I have two theories about this. Now, these can be wrong. I'm just going to share them anyway. I have two theories. One, we get distracted by life, and we forget about the grace that we have received, right? We just go on with our life. It was no big deal. It happened and it's done. We pass it off like it's nothing. Another possibility is that it's easy for Christians, myself included, to just simply fail to extend grace because we just don't want to. Because we give in 
to that selfish side of ourselves. Maybe we're unimpressed by the amount of forgiveness we've given. I hope not. But whatever the case, this should not be. Instead, we are called to be a people of grace, individuals of grace, churches marked by grace, not to jump to judgment and assume someone else's ill intent, but to respond intentionally out of love and grace. Yes, there are moral and ethical standards to uphold. Yes, there are things that we encourage each other to do better in, but there is grace. This is the moral and ethical standard illustrated by the parable. Not that anybody can do well enough to repay the debt, but that we all extend grace, 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 grace received, grace given, forgiveness received when we repent, and forgiveness given when others repent. The final admonition that Jesus gives in this passage is a chilling one, one that I think is mainly meant to emphasize the importance of this teaching. Let me read it again here at the end of, of this story. He says, this is how the heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you give your brother and sister, you forgive your brother or sister from your own heart. Forgiveness built upon a foundation of grace, living into a lifestyle of grace. Now, in a little bit, we're going to have a time of confession. Uh, we're going to be moving into a time of communion. But before we get there, I do want to acknowledge that just because the Bible says that we should do it doesn't make it easy to do, right? Forgiveness can be hard. Forgiveness is not easy, especially when the wrongs done to us run very deep. Forgiveness costs us something, just like it costs the king who forgives the servant's debt. Furthermore, we are human beings. We do not have a limitless well of grace and love like that of God. But all the same, we are called to strive toward following our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I love the fact that sometimes we, we are called Christians, but what that really means is we are Christ followers. We follow Christ. We name ourselves by our Lord, and if that person is Lord, we model ourselves after our Master. We are disciples. We are learners, one who model ourselves after our Lord. We are to strive toward that same kind of grace and forgiveness that Jesus demonstrated in his teaching and in his life and ultimately in his death. I also want to say, as we wrap this up, that forgiveness is not the same necessarily as reconciliation. Forgiveness is an action of the heart, a disposition that accepts that whatever wrong was done would not be counted against that person forever. It acknowledges that I don't expect that person to make it up to me someday. There are times, however, 
Forgiveness is not, an, is not an optional thing in the Scriptures. It is demanded by Jesus. We forgive, 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 show grace. But there are times when reconciliation is not possible. In cases of abuse, in cases of severe betrayal of trust or relationships, there are times when forgiveness can occur, but reconciliation is not realistic. An abused person should not go running back to their abuser to continually be abused because they are forgiving. There are times when there are natural consequences to relational sin that can be so significant that even when there is forgiveness, reconciliation may not happen on this side of heaven. That's to just put it out there to say, it's not as clean and neat as we would all like to hope. It is a little bit messy. There are times when the results of forgiveness are not as if everything just goes the way it used to be. We need to learn to live within the mess, even when reconciliation does not occur. But in all of those circumstances, even where reconciliation is not possible, the challenge for us is to pursue forgiveness, to embrace the grace given to us and allow that to play out into our lives as, life, as a lifestyle of grace so that we can acknowledge for ourselves and for others, God forgave me and I will forgive you. We're going to move into a time of confession. We're going to read the words together. And as we do, let's do it not in a rush, but let's do it thoughtfully, thinking about what the words mean. Bring to mind things that you will say, yeah, I did that, or yeah, I missed the mark on this one. There will be also a moment for us to pray silently, and then we'll begin and close that time. And after we are done, Matt will come forward and um, begin our time of communion. Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. Please take a moment privately. Let us continue. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Lord, would you shape in us an acknowledgement of the grace that you have given us? And Lord, 
form in us a heart of gratitude and grace that this too may be extended to others, that people will see your love and grace given to them through us. In Christ's name, amen.